it's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Do I Walk in the Spirit or the Lusts of My Human Nature? Part 3. Coming up in this episode, most Christians know about the fruits of the Spirit listed in the book of Galatians. We find them to be inspiring and calming. But let's not forget that they follow Paul's list of the 15 nasty deeds of the flesh. These fruits of the Spirit are meant to be much more than comforting, so prepare to be transformed. Now, here's Rick and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Julie, a CQ contributor for several years now. Julie, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Okay, our theme scripture is Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. In our last two episodes, we spent significant time reviewing and understanding the Apostle Paul's list of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians, the fifth chapter. His reason for such a detailed and uncomfortable list was to give us all a clear push forward and away from such things so we can walk towards living a new life. To walk in Jesus' footsteps and to do God's will, first and foremost, we should be, it should be the most important aspect of any Christian's daily experience. In this episode, we continue examining the Apostle Paul's profound contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit by methodically opening up each of the nine characteristics listed. What will these nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit teach us? They teach us what a true Christian life looks like, sounds like, and feels like. So there's a lot of learning to be done with this fruit of the Spirit. So let's begin by recapping the Galatians 5 scriptures where the Apostle Paul's lessons are found. Uh, Julie, let's go to Galatians 5. Uh, We're going to be looking at 16 to 25, but let's just do 16 and 17 for now. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Paul then goes ahead and he lists the deeds of the flesh. There are 15 specific deeds listed, and they're set up in five basic categories. First category uh, from verse 19 is intimate human desire and includes immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The second category was called the spiritual control in our lives. Verse 20 talked about idolatry and sorcery. The third category we call interpersonal relationships, also from verse 20, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. The fourth category was group relationships. Verses 20 to 21 talks about disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. Boy, sounds like fun, huh? It's a bad list. (laughs) It is. And the fifth category to top it all off is reckless behavior from verse 21, drunkenness and carousing. And after this list, Paul then covers anything he might have missed because he says, and things like these of which I forewarn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So... We've got the nastiness of the deeds of the flesh. With this powerfully negative and revealing list in hand, the apostle then immediately moves on to a list of powerfully positive and life-changing characteristics of true Christians. So we're going to look at Galatians 5, 22 to 25, but let's start with 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So we're done talking in detail about those awful deeds, and we finally get to concentrate on Paul's good list. Yeah, you know, and we spent two podcasts on those awful deeds because there were so many of them, and we needed to understand them. So now, with all of that behind us, Paul's point with this stark contrast becomes obvious. Let's go to uh, verses 24 and 25 of Galatians 5. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So Rick, this means we are actively walking on a different path. We're going in a different direction away from that which dishonors God. So we're getting out of the mud, going into a clean path. It's entirely different. What we truly live by dictates how we walk 
through life. And we want to look at the mirror of our heart and consider several personal questions. We've been doing this for several weeks in this series. How are we really doing? And we've been talking about these categories like our own desires, behaviors, our relationships with others. So our first mirror question today is, what do all aspects of my life tell those around me about my life's mission? Do they know what I stand for? Do they know what I stand for? That's, that's a very, very powerful and very, very deep question. Do the people around me know that I stand for something different than the average, the deeds of the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit? So this is how we have to make this transition. So to build a life that reflects walking in the Spirit, as the Apostle Paul is telling us to do, Jesus gave us some basic fundamentals to build upon. And, and we've touched on these in previous episodes in this series, but that first fundamental is humility, Julie Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be poor in spirit is to be humble. That means we have an honest assessment of our talents, our abilities, and weaknesses. And I heard a great definition of humility. 10,000 of the greatest faults in our neighbors are of less consequence to us than one of the smallest in ourselves. Well, that sums it up now, doesn't it? Isn't that nice? <laughs> and if you're counting to 10,000, we should talk, okay? <laughs> That's because true. There's, something, there's something amiss there. So humility is a, is, a, is a profound basis for being able to develop this fruit of the Spirit. Another thing that Jesus uh, teaches us, amongst the many things, is constancy and sacrifice. And we get that from Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And I love the Luke translation here because it adds the word daily, where in Matthew it doesn't. Take up his cross daily. In other words, there's a constancy there in terms of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, Jesus taught much, much, much more than humility and constancy and sacrifice. But for this discussion on the fruit of the Spirit versus the deeds of the flesh, we simply use these two points as a foundation for the detailed teachings of the Apostle Paul on the matter of living faithfully. Let's focus on fruit. Okay, we get to, <laughs> get to Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is, but what does fruit mean? Okay. So when we look at the word in Greek, fruit means, are you ready? I'm ready. Fruit. <laughs> did you, <laughs> it's not did technical. You? <laughs> it's either like a piece of fruit or fruitage, you know, something that's been cultivated or grown. But one thing to remember is we aren't talking about the fruit of Julie or the fruit of Rick. This is the fruit of the Spirit, God's Spirit, meaning his power and influence. So fruit's a general word with both literal and figurative meanings. And the figurative meaning is used a lot in the New Testament. For example, let's look at Matthew 7, 15 to 20, and just kind of secretly count all the times I say fruit. Uh, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits." Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit, and a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Seven times. Seven times you said fruit. And Jesus is teaching a very very important lesson, a very specific lesson here. And it's simple. Good fruit, here's, here, here's a shocker, good fruit comes from good trees. Good trees are cultivated. They're cared for so they can bring forth good fruit. It's an intentional action to make a tree good so it bears good fruit. Bad fruit comes from bad trees, and it's wormy, it's diseased, it's undernourished, it's just not acceptable. It's not it's not what it's supposed to be. It's not what the tree is designed for. Jesus is telling us clearly, good fruit comes from good trees. You know them by their fruit. And the fruit is the indicator not only of the type of plant, but how healthy that plant is. And some plants injure, some grow fruit. And some people, like he talks about thistles, they cause injury. They scatter seeds of trouble, false doctrines, evil surmisings, errors. Some people, don't you just see them like thorn bushes? When they reach out, they impede, they irritate, they annoy, they injure whoever comes in contact with them. So those who are God's people can't live fruitless lives or lives that hurt others. Our fruit is supposed to be nourishing and refreshing. We should be seen as helpers, builders, and peacemakers. And see, 
Jesus really focuses in on that, and, and the Apostle picks up on that focus. And that's why he talks about it's the fruit of God's power and influence in your life. This is what God's power and influence produces, and whatever God's power and influence produces, it's always good. So I have an interesting fact. Um, I'd read, every tree here that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When Palestine, now Israel, was under the rule of the Ottoman Turks for about 400 years until 1917, there was a tree tax imposed. You had to pay a tax for every tree growing in your yard. So what didn't produce profitable fruit, you cut down because it would mean a loss instead of a revenue. It was expensive not to bear good fruit. Well, never knew that. That is one of those little known facts that really brings out the importance of cultivating the right trees, cultivating the right things. So the idea of Jesus' disciples bearing fruit in conjunction with God's Spirit began with Jesus' own teaching the night before his crucifixion. First, he spoke of the Spirit being a helper for his followers in his absence. So we're going to go to John 14, 25 to 27. And again, this is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. These are the last teachings that he gives to his disciples. And we normally read from the New American Standard Bible. This one we're going to read from New International Version. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So the key here is Jesus is talking about the Helper the Holy Spirit coming, God's power and God's influence to come and replace Jesus as our comfort, as our guide. Because when you have God's power and influence working in your life, you are being guided. You're being guided from within by the grace of God. And that's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus introduced that in John the night before his crucifixion. Now, the very next teaching of Jesus recorded in John is the tender and encouraging parable of the vine and the branches. The point? Fruit. Is fruit. (laughs) Abiding in Jesus through the Spirit is for the purpose of growing spiritually. So, Julie, let's go to John 15, 1 to 5. Again, the night before his crucifixion, his last teachings to his disciples. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's important here to remember that abide in me and I in you part. Jesus is the vine. He's the plant. We're only the branches. And we have to have the right spiritual nourishment and pruning. Let's be honest. To a considerable degree, it's up to us the kind of nourishment we're going to have. God will provide good soil of truth, showers of grace, nourishment of precious promises, but it's up to us to determine how and if we're going to use any of what we're given. And the idea of pruning sometimes doesn't feel good, but it is the most important thing. So you, we do have that choice, and that's why the fruit of the Spirit is in, 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 uh, in response to the deeds of the flesh. They're opposites. That's why Paul puts the two together, so we can choose the fruit of the Spirit. So, putting this together as, as an introduction. Rise, are we rising to a spiritual life or are we falling into human depravity? Developing the fruit of the Spirit is not something we do. Rather, it's something we become. Reading about this fruit is one thing. Transforming into a person through whom this fruit can be seen and felt is another thing. I heard a great quote, my neighbor can't see what I plant, but they can see what I harvest. And we need to be that harvest, having that fruit of the Spirit. Here's our mirror question. Am I producing thistles and thorns or fruit? And if fruit, is it wormy and diseased or healthy and nourishing? That's an important question. So it's all about fruit. It's all about being one who has set their life in a direction that provokes godly fruit, not fleshly deeds. 
Now that we know the fruit of the Spirit is all about what we're becoming, where do we start? As we enter the fruit stage of the Apostle Paul's lesson, let's remember the context. The desires of the flesh lead us to the deeds of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is to walk away from such things and towards God's will. This begins with an intentional and focused decision to change. Any decision as important and difficult as this needs a powerful and driving motivation behind it. So the way we look at this is this is much more than your typical New Year's resolution. This is a serious, serious decision. And Julie, you said when we're talking about the vine and the branches, we have choices in these things. We have to decide that this change is something we are up for. Let's get back to Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And don't forget, we do have the CQ Kids video called, What is the Fruit of the Spirit? Because it's never too early to have kids learn about the Apostle Paul's good list at christianquestions.com slash YouTube. So focusing on fruit, let's go with the first one. That's love. That's the foundation for all that is going to follow. All the other fruitage is going to be built on love. Now, most of us have heard the Greek words agape or agapeo love, or in American English, we pronounce it agape love. And the Greek language has at least eight different words for love. Several of them are in scripture with different meanings, ranging from family affection to brotherly bonding to philanthropic activity to pure benevolence. So these first levels of love are very much an earthly kind of love. They work in this conditional back and forth manner. I do this, you love me. As long as you do this, I love you. And once you get to that philanthropic love, having that universal goodwill to all, you start to rise above that give and take to just giving. And benevolence, agape or selfless love, we say is the highest form because it requires nothing in return. There's no reciprocation expected or required. So it's this kind of love, that highest form that requires nothing in return. It's that kind of love that describes God's love. And it's this kind of love that is first on the Apostle Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. Now remember, it's the fruit of, like you said earlier, Julie, it's not the fruit of Julie or the fruit of Rick. It's the fruit of God's Spirit in us, and this is where it begins. This is its foundation. So this first fruit of the Spirit, love, agape love, selfless love, provides the driving motivation for any Christian to live as we are called to live. God loved us first. And that's a fundamental truth that helps us understand this kind of love. God loved us first. Remember, love is not a feeling, it's an action. How do we know that? Because God's love is described that way. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved, and that's agapid, the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So God loved the world. It was an action. He loved the world, and because of that, he gave his Son. Love is an action, not a feeling. It's important to realize that, and it starts with Almighty God. Well, Jesus also loved us in that action form, along with God, and Jesus invited us to rise up to friendship and fellowship with him. And we're going to look at that in John 15, 12 to 14. And remember, John 15, this is the night before his crucifixion. These are the last teachings he gives to his disciples before he is put to death. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Selfless, selfless love is this defining point of what true Christianity is built upon. And notice how this flows. God has this special kind of love for mankind, so he gave us Jesus. Jesus has this special love for mankind, so he willingly sacrificed on our behalf. And we, in turn, are supposed to have the same kind of love for others. Here it talks about our friends, but elsewhere we're supposed to have even that special, unconditional love for our enemies. And that's the same word for love. In, uh, in Matthew and Luke both talk about loving your enemies. So it's a big deal. And that's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. Because as human beings, this is such a far-fetched thing. But through God's power and influence, it is something that can be developed if we allow it to and we position ourselves for it. So now the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 
remember 1 Corinthians 13, begins defining God's love in a practical way for us to learn and apply it. He starts this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, by identifying how the three public parts of our Christianity need love to be of foundational value. And remember, as we go through these things, love is not a feeling, it is an action. It's not a feeling, it's an action. So there's three public parts of our Christianity, three public parts of love. They're going to be what we do, what we know, what we say, what we know, and what we do. So let's, let's start with what we say, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. And most of us are familiar with this chapter from hearing it at weddings, because it's yep. often called the love chapter. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What that means is without love, it just doesn't count. I'm making a bunch of noise. Uh, but Rick, this agape love, this highest level, seems a little aspirational. Except for maybe parents with their children, I don't think that this completely selfless love is our default. <laughs> it's never our default because it's hard. It's hard because it takes me out of the equation. And when we realize, look, that's what Jesus did. We need to understand that's what we need to do. And and part of this expression of this love, this action, is in what we say. We need to be speaking in a way that others can see there's something selfless about this, selfless and sincere, driven by great, great integrity. So let's look at Ephesians to, to just help with this. Ephesians 4, verses 13 to 16. And the theme here is that our goal is Christian maturity. And so he says this, until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature, meaning complete, a full age, perfect, a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So to be a mature Christian requires selflessness and that kind of love that doesn't require anything in return, although it still seems hard, again, when it comes to loving our enemies, to be well, mature. You know, and that's going to be a theme. This, this, this seems hard, and it is hard, and that's why it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the yeah. fruit of us, because it is hard, because we're trying to strive to a level that is not normal human reaction and response, so we need to really focus in on that. So you've got this, this maturity thing happening. Maturity in Christ means growing up and focusing on what brings growth and not attention, not that clanging symbol that you read about. How do we do this? How do we do this? Well, Ephesians 4, 13, to 6, 13 and 14 talked about being a mature Christian. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 now round that out. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, speaking the truth in knowledge, no. Speaking the truth in excitement, no. Mm -mm. Speaking the truth in, in, in seriousness, now you got to be serious, but that's not the point. It's speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? Without any thought of personal gain. For the sake of others, you speak the truth. That's what he's talking about. So this maturity of the body of Christ, this is a key factor of that. And it's part of being in the body. In the body means that you are the some small little part of the whole. Uh, so it grows up in itself in love. The body has to grow in love. This is what nourishes it. So what we say has to be the right thing for the right reason. That's why it's a fruit of God's spirit in us. What we say is important. Let's go to what we know. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 2. So that's back to the love chapter. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I have nothing. So this is, uh, I tell you, the, 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 the Apostle Paul, the brilliance with which he expresses himself as he's teaching very important things, it's, it's phenomenal to me. He says, look, if I, if I know all kinds of things, if I know mysteries and I have faith that's so powerful, it removes the mountains in my life, if I don't have the selfless love, it's useless. He's showing us how fundamental 
love is. And this is why it's the first of this list of the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's power and God's influence in our lives. It has to be there so the rest of the fruit has a way to grow. This is a big key to understanding how the fruit of the Spirit can flourish in us. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. uh, Let's go down to chapter 8 now, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. In other words, we know the truth on this. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So again, it's great to know. And we are privileged to know truth. We are profoundly privileged. But the point is, it's love that edifies. Knowing something is very important, but it's that selfless application of that that helps it to mean something to others. And, you know, when it edifies, that, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about building up others. If anyone lo- no, lo- loves God, he's known of him. Think about that. If we have that selfless love toward God, he knows us. This is why this is such a fundamentally profound, important thing. Knowledge, even by miraculous means, is meaningless unless God's love drives that knowledge. We might be too focused on what we know and not on how we actually live. If I haven't missed a day of church on Sunday for the last 10 years and I can recite scriptures from memory, but it hasn't changed my character for the better, am I really becoming more Christ-like? It's the transformation, the fruitage that's important. Yeah, now this is not to say that we just throw knowledge away, okay? We don't want to make, make, that, make that as a point. The point is that everything that we do, every way that we try and grow has to have this selfless love behind it because God had it, Jesus had it, and Jesus said, you need to have this toward one another. So this is a direct command from Jesus, and it came to us the night before his crucifixion. He was very, very specific on this point. So what we know is important, needs to be expressed through this selfless, benevolent love. So we've talked about what we say, what we know, and now in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, we're going to talk about what we do. Back to the love chapter. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. (laughs) Think about that. He's talking about, and, and Paul is, is being very, very, um, I won't say sarcastic, but he's being very grandiose in this, in this picture. If I give my body to be burned, it means nothing if I don't have that selfless love because it's just a show. So what we do needs to be driven not by, hey, people are going to look at me, but by, hey, this is an expression of God through Christ in me and it's something good for those around me. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 2 is a great example of what not to do. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So this has a practical application when you accidentally on purpose, let it slip about how much you donated to this cause or that, or letting everyone know what you did to help someone else with that motivation of making yourself look good. So I've got a mirror question. Do I secretly like the label of Christian because people think I'm something better than I really am? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah, that yeah, one hurts. Yeah, I can't, that, and, and, but this is important. The selfless love is the thing that's important here. The doing of righteous acts is meaningless before God if they're not driven by God, God's love in us. Now, look, folks, we're not saying don't do uh, righteous acts if you're doing them for the wrong reason. It's still good to do them, okay? Others are benefiting, and that's good, but it's not the development in you that's important as a Christian. We need to do righteous acts to benefit others, but let us find that development in us. So, Julie, Quickly, how about a few practical examples of this kind of selfless love in action? I think some things we can do to help the brotherhood is be slow to believe evil of one another. Uh, Help ourselves so that we're not a burden on others. Uh, Give with our whole hearts. We don't want to be half-hearted or with secret reservation or resentment. And I know one of the things that you value very much, keep private matters private. No gossip. 
That's right. Absolutely no gossip. Those are really, really important matters. And, and, and it's important to realize there's many things that we can do as individuals to rise up to this level of, of, of selfless love. And again, don't be discouraged because it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of me. So, Julie, rising to a spiritual life or falling into human depravity, what do we have? A life of benevolent love that is modeled after God and our Lord Jesus is a life that has a solid foundation for walking in the Spirit. Without this foundation, the other fruit of the Spirit would never fully mature. Strive to learn, feel, express, and live God's love, and by so doing, open the door for true spiritual growth. This opens the door for true spiritual growth. It's the fruit of the Spirit, and love is the beginning. You know, we've all heard that love is the answer, but let's take that one step further and say that God's love working in us is the answer. With selfless love securely in place as the foundational fruit of the Spirit, what comes next? While this list of the fruit of the Spirit is not in a specific order of development, its order does seem to suggest a sequence of sorts. Selfless love is the foundation. I think that's pretty obvious. By its mere presence in our lives, it automatically opens up access to a kind of joy in life that most people can't see or experience. This joy, which is based on God's love and plan, then brings a unique brand of peace to us. So these are the first three fruit of the Spirit that helps us process the traumas and tragedy of life. So there's a sense of um, process here in these first three fruit of the Spirit. As this episode continues, we're going to observe how the fruit of joy and peace are an outgrowth of selfless love. Okay, they're an outgrowth. Uh, In episode 1257, our next episode, uh, we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit that's developed based on selfless love. And those fruit are patience, kindness, and goodness. And finally, the last in this series will be episode 1258. It's going to be the fruit that is the result of the selfless love, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I get that selfless love is the foundation, but why is self-control mentioned last? (laughs) Because I think it's the culmination of all of these things. To truly have self-control is to truly be Christ-like. To have that selfless love is to begin as Christ-like, and to have it all develop and then be in you at the end is to truly be Christ-like. So I think that it's just, it's just this bookend perspective that really helps us see how it all fits together. So this fruit of the Spirit is an outgrowth of selfless love, developed based upon selfless love, and a result of selfless love. So let's get started. What's next? Focus on the fruit, joy. Finally, we get to joy. Joy is a newly produced gladness based on selfless love and spiritual things. In Greek, this word translates into English, joy means cheerfulness and calm delight. And true and lasting joy is a fleeting experience in our world. For many, joy is experienced as a one-off event like the birth of a baby or a wedding or the accomplishment of a difficult task. So you have these things that happen, and we have this joy. Well, the idea of joy being a fruit of God's Spirit, remember it's a fruit, it's a result, it's a fruitage of God's power and influence in us, uh, implies that this joy should be always accessible and ever-inspiring. So it should be something that we always have access to. And it's supposed to be a baseline, not a moment, not an emotional outburst. It is an eternal focus that helps us to move forward. And that's, that's a good, good way to describe it. It's supposed to be, it's a baseline. All right, how does, how does that work? How, does, how do we get there? Well, fleeting joy, and you mentioned, is common. Even among many who hear the name of Jesus, fleeting joy is common. Let's go to Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And the context of this is, this is the parable of the sower, where Jesus explained how the gospel message, pictured by seeds, fell on four different kinds of soil, picturing how different attitudes of heart receive the gospel. Let's go ahead and pick this up in verse 16. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they heard the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Okay, so you have this parable, and it talks about these rocky places. Receive the word of, of, of life, and it's joyful. It gives them that delight, that cheerfulness. It's like, this is awesome stuff. 
and then because they have no strength of root and, and because of afflictions and difficulties, the, it, it, it fades. It's fleeting joy, just like in all of the other experiences of, of people's lives. So Christianity can fall easily fall into that category, but that's not the kind of joy we're talking about here. It's something bigger. It's something different. So how the Spirit produces joy in us, how does it do that? God's Spirit opens our eyes of understanding to the power and the impact of his plan. What do we mean by that? Joy comes from the sense of the bigness of what God has done, is doing, and will do all through Jesus. Let's, let's illustrate that. One example of joy in God's plan on many levels. We're going to go with one example that's going to show us joy in very different ways. It's going to begin with personal, individual personal joy, and it's going to expand from there. We're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus. There's those scriptures in Luke chapter 2 that everybody knows. Let's go to Luke 2-7 when Mary gives birth. In the King James Version, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. If you've ever been in the situation where you've experienced the birth of a child, it is a joy that you just can't get your head around. It's, it's such an amazing thing after the difficulty of, of, of labor, and now there's this baby. And you can imagine the joy that Joseph and Mary felt at the birth of Jesus. You think they worried that they were in a, in a, in a stable? It didn't even occur to them. He's born. He's real. And it's just such a joyful moment. That's personal joy. But wait, the birth of Jesus produced much more joy than that. It would bring more than personal joy. It would bring joy to the entire world. Let's continue in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock at night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This is joy that the angel says, great joy, which shall be to all people. So the birth of Jesus didn't just bring personal joy to parents. This is his life would bring an incredible joy to all people everywhere. So you can see that joy can happen on all kinds of different levels. But wait, there's, there's, there's something else here. There's something else. Not only does it bring great joy to all people, but the joy of Jesus' birth brought joy in heaven as well. We know that because when we go to Luke chapter 2, back to it, verses 13 and 14 explain that to us. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So you have the angels rejoicing. The angels, they're praising God. Now, this wasn't a put on. This wasn't an act. This wasn't a, okay, go say that you're praising God and, and sing. This is angelic joy just being expressed, and the shepherds happen to be able to hear. I can't even imagine what, what that would have been like. The point is, the joy of Jesus' birth was personal, it was earthly, and it was heavenly. It was on all different levels, and that's a hint as to the joy that we as Christians should carry. To be about the work of God through Christ is to know this joy that we just read about and have it be ever able to inspire us in whatever circumstances we might face. But we all get sad. Yeah. So am I failing as a Christian if I'm not running around throwing flower petals all the time? Is my tree wormy if I'm not producing fruit that's always joyful? All right, that's a really good question. And the answer is we can't confuse a feeling of joy with that baseline of operation of joy. Let me ask you this. The scripture says, Jesus was sorrowful. This is what he says. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Was he throwing flower petals around? Was he smiling and happy and, and jumping out of the skin? No. But he had the joy of his father in him. It was just a hard time. So just because we have hard times, just because we have to go through hard things, doesn't mean we're lacking joy. We need to be able to harness it, harness it from within. And that's what 
Jesus did. Another example of the Spirit producing joy in us is focusing on Jesus and his joy. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you have Jesus embracing the experiences, the difficulties, despising, making little of the shame. Why? Because the joy of God was driving him. So let me ask you another question. Um, There's such a thing therapists are now calling toxic positivity. And I read an article from USA Today, uh, and this was a quote. A therapist, Melissa Dowd, said, Toxic positivity is when you avoid all negative thoughts or feelings, pretending everything's going well when it's not. And another psychotherapist describes it as unrelenting pressure to be happy and positive no matter what the circumstances are. So suppressing our emotions and coating them over with something pretty may not allow us to process them in a healthy way. It's okay and even healthy to be upset or even angry or annoyed. Can you speak to why this fruit of joy isn't just a false veneer because that we the, fake? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and this fruit of joy is, is from the inside out. And it's really important when you have those difficult emotions to deal with them. I cannot stress enough from personal experience and experience with lots of, lots of those of us who struggle, and that's pretty much everybody. We have to experience those emotions, and it doesn't mean you are joyless. It just means that for the moment you're having hard things, and inevitably, if you process through them and you can put your experience into the hands of God because his hands are bigger than yours, you realize that it's God's providence that will bring you through. And that is where the joy comes in. That's what we have to get to. It's important to go through those things. The Apostle Paul was depressed at one point. Jesus was sorrowful unto death. You know, Elijah said to God, please take my life. Many great individuals of faith went through hard times. It doesn't mean they were joyless. It just meant that their joy was internal, needed its place to, to, to be able to be expressed as they dealt with those things. So let, let's go a little further. Another example of, of the Spirit producing joy in us, joy in the brotherhood and their experiences. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. And the context here is the Apostle Paul is going to be speaking, and he was personally, emotionally, and spiritually attached to the churches and the brotherhood. He said this, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, I look at you, I feel this sense of God's goodness and grace, and it inspires me. You drive me. You give me joy. Now, Rick, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I've known you for a long time. I've seen you sad to the point of tears. I've seen you frustrated, but never to the point of giving up on yourself or anyone. But you often, almost too often, use the phrase, it's all good. (laughs) And it kind of drives me crazy because you use it when things are most decidedly not going good. How does this relate to your joy? And are you sure you're not pretending to be happy because you know you're supposed to be? Oh, no, 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 no. This is not a pretending. When I say it's all good, I mean it's all good, even if it's some of the most hard experiences I've ever had to face. And when I say it's all good, here's what I mean. What I mean is I may be suffering. I may not want you to know all about the details at this moment. I may be suffering. I may not have an answer. I may not know what to say or do, but I know that God's providence is there and will lead me, and I'm just looking for that. So it's all good because God's providence will deliver if I stay close to it. Therefore, it's all good. It's not like I'm having a great time, but it's all good because this is the lesson that I am supposed to learn. And, and those are hard lessons sometimes. Again, joy is a basis for action. It's not a feeling. It's, it's a basis to say God's providence delivers. And even if the delivery brings pain, it's still good because we're being developed in Christ. Jesus taught us that his love and joy would be able to work uh, in us. Well, let's go back to John 15, uh, verses 10 and 11. And again, this is the night before his crucifixion. There's a definite pattern that's unfolding here. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. But now here's a quick question. I read, you will abide in my love if, that's 
unconditional agape love, but only if you keep my commandments. That seems like it's pretty conditional. <laughs> well, well, it's, it's, it's conditional because to abide in Jesus' love means that you accept his redemption of your, your person. And the world doesn't want his redemption, so they're not going to abide in his love. Jesus is saying, come, I will live as your redeemer if you will follow me, and now you can abide in my love. So yes, it is conditional. It's based on being redeemed. It's based on being bought and living in that state of being. The world will get the redemption later. It will be given to them at their resurrection. We as Christians get it now. That's how we open the door to abide in his love. Okay. So I almost see it like two rooms. One's dark, one's filled with bright light, and that's where that unconditional love, joy, and peace are. And as long as I'm in that room, I get to be the beneficiary of those blessings. Yes, absolutely. And we want to stay in that room. God's love, Jesus' love, and the love that we're supposed to be developing bring us there. And joy is what grows out of that because we see the magnitude of what God has for us. Jesus also prayed for us to have his joy. This is in John 17, 13, and 14. Interestingly, coincidentally, I think not, this is also the same night, the night before his crucifixion. Here's what he said. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So this joy comes through God's word, which God's spirit helps us to understand. And what we have, we read some scriptures about the birth of Jesus and the joy that it brought. And now here, just before his death, what does he pray? That his joy may be made full in his followers. Joy bookends Jesus' life. This is why it's one of the primary fruit of the spirit. We need to have it inside of us. It doesn't always shine out but it needs to be there the way it was in Jesus. With all the ways joy is available, there'll still be challenges, though, in living with joy. James 1, 2-4 said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that your testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. And we recommend episodes 814, 820, What's the Fruit of Your Life?, our, our friend Vicki was a guest, uh, and she was talking about developing these fruits while undergoing cancer treatments. And one of the things when she saw this scripture, she thought it said, consider it joy, but it actually says, consider it all joy. And the Revi New Revised Standard says, consider it nothing but joy. So every part of the trial can be joyful if, like you were saying, we have the faith that our Father gives only the experiences necessary and only for the duration necessary for our highest spiritual welfare. That's that internal joy. You see, it's all good. You just, proved, <laughs> you just proved it. You just absolutely proved it. So are we rising to a spiritual life or falling into human depravity? As a, spirit, as a fruit of the Spirit, joy is unlocked when we embrace the love of God as a basis for our lives and dwell in the magnitude of His plan. That's the secret. Joy is a natural byproduct of the Spirit, as there can be no other response to such a wise, just, and loving plan. You can't have a different response than utter joy to see how God's plan is for all of mankind. In our daily Christian experiences, we need to allow the joy of God's plan to live, breathe, and grow, even when our trials are raging, because that's what Jesus did. Joy is easily overlooked. So let's work at keeping joy in the forefront of our hearts and minds. Again, that's what Jesus did. With the life-changing power of love and the uplifting presence of joy in our lives, what comes next? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and then there's peace. Think about a tumultuous day where there is furious activity and noise and distraction everywhere you look. Think about walking away from that environment into a place of quiet and order. You take a breath and say, peace at last. As Christians, we want to learn how to better keep this peaceful retreat accessible at all times. And here's a practical idea. Our friend Tamara is a Christian Questions volunteer, and she thinks when she's having some difficult experiences, she thinks that transferring yourself from that moment to a state of mind that triggers giving peace authority in your experience is very helpful. So when she gets distressed, she imagines herself literally crawling onto our Heavenly Father's lap, 
like she used to with her earthly father when she was little to feel the comfort of his arms. And she said that that peace of our Abba, our father, our daddy, who soothes our fears and our mental pain surrounds me. It's a place of rest. We can't get to that place of seeking peace unless we have the love of God and Christ in us, and unless we can see and understand how good our Father is. If you didn't believe in his utter, complete, total goodness, you wouldn't want to be there. So that's a great example of putting these fruit of the Spirit in order. So, Julie, we've got to focus on fruit. Where are we going here? Well, peace is a newly produced harmony based on selfless love and spiritual things. That Greek word that's translated into English as peace means peace, by implication, prosperity, and the Greek-English lexicon expands this as an exemption from the rage and havoc of war, wouldn't that be nice, peace between individuals, that is harmony. And it also means security, safety, and prosperity, because if you have peace and harmony, things are safe and prosperous. So true and lasting peace always originates with God. Let's go back to that angelic proclamation of Jesus's birth in Luke 2, 13 to 14. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it's interesting that you had both joy and peace in that angelic proclamation and giving us a sense of what's so important here. And, you know, you see this love, joy, and peace seem to be kind of coming up a lot here. Interestingly, we've been referring to the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And again, this is the last time he has before he is crucified. Now, obviously, he had time with his disciples after he was raised. But before he's crucified, everything became havoc because they were unsure of themselves. So he's spending significant time teaching them giving them comfort. And there's actually four ways that he comforted them. This is, to me, this is just fascinating. First, he promised God's Spirit would guide them. Remember, the comforter will come. I'm going, not going to leave you uh, comfortless. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you that comfort. God will send it. Second, he encouraged them to love one another as he loved them. So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, God, Jesus promised that night the Spirit would come. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? It's love. Third, he gave them his joy. Remember, I want your joy to be in me. This was his, prayer, his, his, his teaching to them. Let my joy be in you. And then fourth, he gave them his peace. So when we see that, we're seeing that Jesus himself put those first three fruit of the Spirit on the table and said, this is what the Spirit does for you. It's just, it's remarkable. Let's go back to that night one more time, John 14, verses 25 to 27. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world does do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. No wonder the Apostle Paul teaches this in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Jesus lived it. So Paul taught it. That it's, makes sense. It does. And it's just remarkable how those three fruit of the Spirit are all right there that night. They're, they're, they're pointed out along with bringing the Spirit. So for God's Spirit to, be, to produce peace within us, we have to be willing. We have to be willing to live differently, beginning with putting on love as a basis for our lives. And again, there's a process we're going to go through through this next scripture. Colossians chapter 3, let's start with verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, and that's that selfless agape love, which is the perfect bond of unity. All right, so you've got that kind of as a basis, and no surprise there. Once clothed with love, we have all things in harmony, which can only bring joy. So what does this combination produce? Well, let's go to Galatians 3, the next few verses, verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Julie... Wait, no, it <laughs> <laughs> doesn't say that. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching, and here comes the joy, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So I see what you were saying here. You've got love and then peace is joy. 
love and joy is peace. That's it. Love and joy is peace. So if I'm not feeling peaceful, this is the same kind of questions I was asking. Does that automatically mean I'm not growing that fruit of peace? And I think I know the answer now, because if I'm dependent on the peace of Jesus, my, on, my, on my own, I could get nervous just like anyone else. But if I picture I'm in that bright room with all that light and it's peaceful there, I'm promised peace if I'm abiding in Jesus. Yeah, you, you are promised peace. However, sometimes life is not peaceful. And sometimes it's rarely peaceful. And sometimes life calls for us to act differently. I mean, was Jesus all just all peaceful when he's clearing the temple? That was not a peaceful act. It was a necessary act. But he had the peace of God. He had the joy of God. And because this is his father's house, it's a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. It's not tolerable. So that wasn't a peaceful act, but it came from the, his peaceful heart because he's doing the will of God. The peace of, of Christ uh, is to rule in our hearts. Uh, we must, and I really like Tamara's example, and this really kind of brings it back to the front, forefront. We, we have to develop our capacity to not only house this peace, but to let it guide us through our everyday challenges. And when I talked about some of those practical ways to show love in action to the Christian brotherhood, when love is operating like that, when you have that kind of action, it does provide peace in the church and in our minds. And I think in a way it erects this barrier against attacks of Satan because we're, we're more Christ-like. And, and the thing to remember is joy and peace, they come from within, not from without. Don't think of joy and peace like a raincoat that you put on and you protect yourself. That's not what this is saying. The fruit of the Spirit is. Fruit is developed from within. It's not placed onto something from without. We're not going to try to shield our lives with joy and peace. You don't hide behind them. You let them grow within you so you can cope with your life. Not a raincoat, a basis for action, a basis for coping, a basis for growing. Being given this peace is a result of God's spirit, God's control, and it promises to be a powerful transformation. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known unto all men, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You notice it doesn't just kind of drape over you. It, it comes from within. The peace of God, it surpasses explanation. How can you have that internal peace? People don't understand. Jesus had it going to the cross, hanging on the cross. He had it because he was in the midst of his Father's will, and he knew the end result. It's a beautiful thing to learn how to develop through God's Spirit. Finally, one last scripture that brings our entire discussion of these first three fruit of the Spirit into focus. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and then we'll go to verses 3 to 5, and Julie, I'm going to interrupt you several times. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, peace is there. Peace is, we are justified. We have been redeemed, and that gives us peace with God. Go ahead. And not only this, but we also exalt, and here comes joy again, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. So, you see, with those things, you can rejoice because those things that are coming at you and burying you are actually good, just like we were talking before. It's all good. This is what we talked about in James 1, 2 in the last segment. Consider it joy, all joy, when you fall into diverse difficulties and trials because they produce gross, gro growth, not gross. It feels gross, okay? <laughs> but they produce growth. And this is important because it comes from the inside out. The joy of God working with us comes from the inside out, and the peace as a result of that comes from the inside out. And now let's continue. Verse 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So you've got, you started the scripture with peace, you had the joy of the experiences, you have the love of God's been poured out in our hearts because of God's Spirit. There you have it. The fruit, got all four in one nice little package. That's right. The fruit of the Spirit begins with love, joy, and peace. That's where we're starting. And folks, we are just beginning to un unfold the fruit of the Spirit. This is, the, this is like the introduction, much more, much, much more to come. So wrapping this up for now, Julie, rising to a spiritual life or falling into human depravity, what do we have? 
As a fruit of the spirit, peace is a quiet but amazingly powerful asset. This specific and godly peace originates with our acceptance of God's plan for us and the entire world. We can only attain and maintain such peace if we freely let the love of God transform us and then live in the joy of that transformation. As fruits of the spirit, love, joy, and peace are game changers. They will make our lives different. We just need to let God's Spirit have, uh, have its dominion in our everyday. If God's Spirit can have its dominion, we can learn this love, this joy, and this peace. Okay, Julie, I know we've read the scripture like a thousand times, but one more time, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So in our next episode, episode 1257, we will address the fruit that is developed based on selfless love. And again, so next episode, patience, kindness, and goodness. And then in episode 1258, we're going to wrap it all up with the fruit that is as a result of the selfless love, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So folks, as we wrap this up, there is so much good here. There is so much to learn by this, the, the, the list that the apostle put in place, all of those nasty deeds of the flesh, and now how the fruit of the Spirit unfolds. Let's look at the process that the apostle puts in place and say, there's hope, there's room for growth, there is God's providence, and it's all good. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, coming up in our next episode, as we mentioned, Do I Walk in the Spirit or the Lusts of My Human Nature? Part 4. Talk to you next week.